So let me add to the complexity of the situation we find ourselves in. Uh, at the same time that we're solving for climate change, we're going to be building cities for three billion people. That's a doubling of the urban environment. If we don't get that right, I'm not sure all the climate solutions in the world will save mankind, because so much depends on how we shape our cities, not just environmental impacts, but our social well-being, our economic vitality, our sense of community and connectedness. Fundamentally, the way we shape cities is a manifestation of the kind of humanity we bring to bear. Fundamentally, the way we shape cities is a manifestation of the kind of humanity we bring to bear. I feel that these words of Peter Calthorpe, a city planner and advocate for human-centered design of urban spaces, in a TED Talk from 2017, are worth repeating. Perhaps because they sum up the crux of why urban spaces, city planning, and social justice need to go hand in hand. Welcome. I'm Tombini Marangani, host of season three of the Just for Change podcast. If you've been following this series, you'll know that I have conversations with change makers from South Africa and further afield. It's probably safe to say that most South Africans, albeit to a greater or lesser extent, experience the failure of public infrastructure every day. Load shedding, potholes, and public safety, to name a few. Another example that comes to mind is the issue of public transport in our cities. Many people do not have a choice about taking public transport, but it is often unreliable and unsafe. We cannot talk about the issue of urban spaces without acknowledging the legacy of apartheid and the fact that we live in its reality today. Having common constitutional rights and national socioeconomic rights has done little to close the spatial divide amongst other things. The South African Cities Network State of South African Cities Report, published in 2021, tracked everything from levels of poverty to economic development and access to basic services across the major cities in South Africa. Two of South Africa's biggest cities and economic hubs, Johannesburg and Cape Town, both experienced significant population growth between 2011 and 2019. Yet in both cities, approximately 45% of people live on less than 1,200 rand per month. Not only that, but in South Africa's largest cities, unemployment, according to stats as A, ranges from 23% to 39.8%. And then there's the reality that according to the World Bank Urban Population Statistics, also released in 2021, almost 70% of the population in South Africa lives in urban areas and cities. So not only are people moving to cities in greater numbers, but we're also seeing an increase in the number of vulnerable households due to poverty and unemployment. This is a global reality too. And so, as with many things right now, we're in a time where things need to change swiftly. The way that cities were built during what some would describe as the last big shift in society, the Industrial Revolution, is not good or viable now. Climate change and inclusion are just some aspects that were not part of these developments. There is a vast and complex landscape of possibility ahead of us, where we all hopefully dare to tread as we consider what the cities and urban spaces of our today and tomorrow could be. Joining me now to discuss this further is urban spaces expert and activist Jody Alamaya. 
Jody is a co-founder of Open Streets, a citizen-led initiative that hopes to change the way we use, perceive, and experience streets. She also runs her own consultancy and helps urban development, policymakers, practitioners, advocacy workers, and civic groups improve their strategies, projects, know-how, and institutional systems for better, more resilient outcomes. Jody holds a BA in social work, an honors in public administration, and a master's degree in development finance. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. Welcome, Jody. It's a real privilege to have you share your story with us. Tell me a little bit more about how you ended up working in this sector. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, my journey into urban development is a bit of an odd one. I, I started off as a social worker, um, but very quickly realized that a lot of the day-to-day challenges and crises and social issues that my clients were facing were as a result of the urban context that they were living in, uh, being displaced from economic opportunities, um, being primary amongst them, and also the quality of the urban environment, the housing conditions and, and things like that. Um, I was invited to comment from a social worker's perspective on the uh, plans for the N2 gateway housing development. And myself and many other social workers commented that these plans were going to perpetuate a a lot of the uh, social issues that we were seeing in terms of, in particular, social issues such as gangsterism and crime. Uh, Unfortunately, those comments weren't really taken into consideration and the design went ahead. And we still see a lot of similar designs being used in housing programs to today. But that sort of sparked my interest in thinking more broadly about some of the systemic issues that we were looking at. And I sort of took a pivot uh, into uh, urban development uh, consulting and and have, have had various career trajectories from then. They talk about a ladder and a map of a career. Mine's definitely a map of I've kind of worked on the problem from various different perspectives over the years. Can you help us with a basic understanding of what urban development entails? So, you know, I think this is definitely something that will be answered differently from different perspectives. If you're a property developer, you're going to talk about it being about new commercial and residential buildings and uh, the sort of regeneration of existing spaces or new or new uh, zones. Others who might be looking at it uh, from sort of an engineering perspective will talk about building new infrastructure, roads, big bridges, public transport, uh, things like that to keep up with the growth of of cities and and urban spaces. Um, Others might talk about addressing uh, sort of social issues or ecological sustainability uh, to sort of maintain the overall health and well-being of an urban system and and an urban systems perspective. So it is quite a complex uh, sort of field that brings together all of these different perspectives and these sort of layers of of inputs into the urban system. Um, And it's typically driven by a range of different factors, including how fast the population of a particular place might be growing, how the economy is performing, what the social and cultural trends are, as well as the strength of the different actors in that space. So how strong the local authorities are to plan and guide uh, how how the inputs into that urban system are are um, are managed um, and and perform against a particular long-term strategy or plan uh, and uh, how the resources are sort of governed and and shared um, or if they're not that strong a, a lot of the uh, 
yeah, results of urban development might be driven more by market forces or info, informal forces. So, yeah, it's a, a sort of a combination of all of these inputs and then the strength of these different actors is really will inform how that all comes together. I think what you're what you're giving us insight to is that cities really are complex systems and that there are so many stakeholders involved and so many different issues that need to be managed and responded to all at the same time um, by a range of by a range of actors, as you've mentioned. What are some of the biggest issues facing city planners and governments in the so-called developing world today? And perhaps you can outline how these are shifting or growing as we move further into the 21st century. So, you know, obviously the, the what's long been spoken about is this concept of rapid urbanization, that our cities are growing really, really fast. The populations are moving to urban centers in, in, in search of, of improved livelihoods. And so to keep up with that growth, uh, you have to introduce new infrastructure and new housing and new public spaces and services um, at quite a fast pace? And do you have the underlying uh, economy, uh, budgets, um, governance and institutional capacity to deliver all of that? And often the answer to that latter part of that question is no, you, you lack either the institutional capacity, the, the budgets, the governance structures, or all three of those. Um, and so the result of that will be uh, some failure uh, either represented through informality, uh, through inequality, um, through sort of very distorted markets, uh, you know, un unaffordable housing and things like that. Um, and the next sort of step from that will be some representation of crisis, uh, things like uh, crime, um, very extreme vulnerability to other shocks like climate change, um, impacting on different communities differently. Some are more insulated and protected from that than, than others. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously we've seen now uh, with with floods in, in Durban, what that looks like uh, with with the pandemic, how different communities were impacted. Um, and that can that can all seem very overwhelming and very sort of doom and gloom. But at the same time, we do have a lot of new energy introduced into our cities recently um, with a lot of uh, ability to collaborate, introduced through digital tools, a lot of ability to plan and understand and analyze what's happening in our city through access to much more information and data than we ever had before. And if you have in place just the most fundamental basics of governance, there is the potential to mobilize and get community input into the plans. One of the most fundamental things that if you have those things in place that then needs to be brought in is obviously the capital to actually provide for the infrastructure services and housing that's needed to keep up with growth. So it's all very well knowing what's needed and knowing where it's needed and having the community input into what's needed, but um, to then actually be able to provide for that. And, and that's where, you know, they are now more and more innovative financing models available, long-term financing models available, and, and more changes to municipal finance structures to actually say we need to have more autonomy at the city level to plan our city's revenue structures and, and access debt at a local level and things like that to be able to actually address these challenges. Can I ask you to just take a step back? I think it's what you've laid out is, is, is quite comprehensive. 
Um, and some of the material needs in, in cities in the developing world are pretty standard, right? So infrastructure, uh, storm and water, um, electricity, safe sources of water. But the governance arrangements in these cities can vary widely. And there seems to be a temptation to just want to have one lens to look at this very complicated picture through. To what extent does context play a role in the types of challenges that city planners and city governments may face? No, absolutely. It's, it's very different in different contexts. Um, I, I mean, I think in, in South African cities, obviously, we're facing a very, very big change at the moment where we've got coalition governments, for example, coming on board. And this is a whole new set of capabilities and skills that needs to be learned in terms of negotiating what is the plan and the vision for the cities. How are we going to stick to a steady plan and vision even while there might be uh, changes happening within coalitions? What is the role then between the administration and the political layer to be able to continue to deliver services while we adapt to a new political model? Um, so that's, you know, that's really quite a big shift that's happening in our metropolitan context in South Africa at the moment. In other contexts, you know, you've got cities in the world where there isn't even a mayor, for example. So this concept of an executive mayor is held very important in South Africa. But there's other cities where there either is only a ceremonial mayor or there isn't a mayor at all. And the administration plays a much stronger role. And the importance of a, of a capable administration and a capable um, municipal technical uh, skill is is held most important, and there's a much more central authority from a central government, for example, that sets in place what are the policies, what are the plans, what are the what are the the procedural guidelines, and things like that. In South Africa, our municipalities actually own and manage and implement a large number of of assets. Um, and are responsible for a large number of services at a municipal level. There's actually relatively little that they're not fully in charge of. There's parts of the transport system that they're not fully in charge of. Um, some aspects of housing that they struggle with because there's conditions on the grants and how they can how they can implement uh, the grants. And then they've got what they call uh, sort of so-called unfunded mandates around social infrastructure like libraries and clinics and things like that, but they still deliver those services. So local municipalities in South Africa are actually relatively empowered and responsible for a large number of services in comparison to, to other models that we would look to in other parts of the world. So their governance capabilities actually need to be really, really strong and need to have a strong line of sight to a long-term future, a long-term uh, management model, and a long-term relationship with the constituents that they're accountable to. I think what you've just described really adds texture and understanding to the fact that you actually can't look at the urban through just one lens, um, even though the, the physical and capital needs of cities tend to be the same. But as you've rightly pointed out, the conditions can be wildly different. And just turning to South Africa now, you've already mentioned the coalition governments, which have thrown us into a whole new phase of, of, of our democratic process. But can you speak a little bit about what happens on the ground when it comes to urban and city development in South African cities today? I think when we when we think about South Africa, we must recognize that we have come quite a long way and, the, and there were good gains to be had in access to basic services. So we did make some good strides in access to water, electricity, and very basic services, and some good housing programs that were run out that 
just uh, reached the basic minimum in terms of a, a measure of a roof over our head. But in terms of continuing to progress and continue to sort of strive for excellence, we, we slowed down. And part of the reason why we slowed down was the inability of these programs to adapt to feedback on, on their performance and to adapt to new market conditions. So an example of that would be in the housing program, there was a lot of feedback around the inability of housing grants to, to uh, deliver housing products that were well suited to the needs of tenants or recipients that uh, could be well located, that could accommodate mixed use, mixed tenure, mixed income housing. And that feedback has been on the policy table for you know well over a decade. And yet the structure of the housing grants has remained the same for both social housing and uh, uh, sort of so-called RDP housing. And similar sorts of things have happened in the transportation space. There's been a lot of dialogue and, and sort of failure to launch on uh, programs around uh, how do we better integrate taxis into a formal system? Um, uh, what should we be doing to uh, uh, decentralize or devolve the management of rail, rail to, to metros? Uh, and so there's, there just hasn't been, I think, a sense of like real aspiration for uh, taking big strides in our metros. We've kind of been like ticking along on delivery. Um, and that's at the best case. In the last three to four years, I think we've been sliding backwards. Um, and a, a lot of the sliding backwards has been due to uh, corruption and, and poor governance. You mentioned that there were um, well-designed policies and plans um, developed quite some time ago, which looked at addressing the needs of a range of income groups for decent shelter and access to basic services. But there hasn't been the appetite to actually continue to retool and improve those plans. Um, why do you think that we're facing such a barrier? And how can we start to reconceive the idea of social and inclusive housing initiatives in our cities? I think a, I think a part of it is, is just the the distance between where some of these policies and programs are run and where they're implemented. So, you know, setting housing and transport policy and designing the grant structures and the rules for how that should be run at a national level can make sense in terms of, you know, that is where the, the ANC sits and that they want to drive a national agenda and they want to drive their policy agenda um, and they want equity across all cities in terms of how this is implemented. But it is very, very far from the ground. Um, so to, to provide feedback from projects and from communities and from NGOs that are active in the space all the way up to a national level um, is quite difficult. And so you get lots of layers of sort of organized groups and uh, it becomes quite academic by the time it gets to the top and you get these policy conferences and things like that that are, that are engaging. And it becomes quite a slow process of engagement um, and, and thinking. And as I say, it can become quite academic. Um, and it becomes this tension between developing the most perfect normative uh, policy versus testing and iterating and trialing things on the ground at a local level and seeing what can be done. Um, and I think there's, there, there is quite a lot of appetite at the, at the ground level to try things out and test things, but there isn't the 
legislative framework to allow for that, um, you would be breaking rules of national treasury or you'd be breaking rules associated with the grant or you'd be breaking a policy and you, you know, you'd, you'd risk having to send money back to national treasury or, or get um, an, you know, a bad audit outcome if you did that. So you have to comply with, uh, with all sorts of, of regulations and, and guidelines. So we, yeah, I think we haven't we haven't created the environment to try out lots of things. We've created the environment where we have to somehow design the perfect program and then implement it nationally, um, and 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 be just stuck in in realms of debate about what that is um, instead of instead of allowing people to try things out. Where we have tried things out, it's largely been driven uh, by you know, NGOs or foreign groups coming in with, with donor funding and trying out. And then it's on an incredibly small scale. It's a pilot. Um, and again, it gets fed up through the sort of academic policy network as an example, um, but doesn't get, uh, yeah, it doesn't get uh, sort of adopted in any, any large scale to be replicated out. Talk to me about shared public spaces. Um, that's a large part of your work with Open Streets. We'd like to learn more about why they're important, why we need to create more, and especially on why they need to be made safe for everyone. Public spaces are, are sort of my my soft spot. <laughs> um, I think a lot of people think of a public space as, as, you know, a park with a fence around it and you go there with your child to sort of sit on the swing or you went there as a teenager <laughs> to get away from the family house or something like that. Um but really, they they are uh, sort of every space that you're ever in when you're not uh, in a private building. So they are um, the street spaces, they the taxi ranks, they are the civic centres, the libraries, the clinics. All of those are are public spaces, um, and you know they so important to contributing to our sense of community. Um, which can be positive or negative. So if they are not well looked after, well designed um, and well programmed, uh, they can contribute to a person feeling excluded, um, having lots of negative connotations with the broader society and community that they live in um, and having very negative memories uh, for the rest of their life. Um, Whereas if they are well-designed, uh, maintained and well-programmed, it's the opposite. A person has a very strong attachment to the broader society that they're living in and has lots of good memories that they will continue to go back on that propel them in all sorts of ways, um, in their family life, in their business life, in their community life. It's very practically, if you have a public space and you are mugged in that public space, you don't want to go back there you're scared of going back there, you will change your behavior next time you're there with your child in terms of how you teach your child to behave in that space. Whereas if in that same public space or another public space, you felt free and safe to like learn how to ride a bicycle, um, that's a very positive memory. And, you know, you'll always want to go back there and share photos of that place and want to bring your child there when you do have a child again and maybe teach your child how to ride a bike there and things like that. So those are completely two opposite experiences and they have long-term lasting impacts in terms of how people engage with the community around them and also how we feel that we belong and, and how, you know, 
what our right is to sort of show up in society and uh, and show up in public space. My involvement with Open Streets was I was one of several co-founders of Open Streets. We were a group of people who who realized that streets were the biggest network of public open spaces and that they reached into every community in in Cape Town. Um, So not every community has the same amount of parks or swimming pools or libraries or clinics or halls, but every community has streets. And while they are predominantly used for cars, they can be made available for other uses by closing them off on specific days or specific time of the day or cordoning off portions of them or just redesigning them in such a way that pedestrians have greater access to them. Um, and so by celebrating the this asset that we have, um, you can use streets in a way that uh, changes how people perceive them and changes what people can use them for, for leisure, for physical activity, for developing new skills, for teaching children how to do things and playing games, um, for getting together to uh, do cultural events or religious events. And so Open Streets was really about that mission. And uh, we advocated for different policies around how, how communities could get access to their streets by minimizing the barriers to using them for events and put on these open streets days as uh, sort of examples of what that what that could look like. You've shared with us the vision behind starting open streets. Can you tell us a little bit more about the journey, your your interaction with policymakers and officials and communities as you started to introduce this idea? The experience with communities was uniformly the same. Anytime we did a, an open streets day, the it, response was can you come back again next week? <laughs> it was just, and, and, and in fact, we still get uh, people kind of saying, when is it happening again? Why, why, you know, why is it stopped? When is it happening? Uh, people just loved it and, and wanted more of it. And, you know, some people have, uh, we developed a, a toolkit on how to put on open streets days and, you know, it, some communities carry on, carry on with it and, and, and get going. Um, Unfortunately, it does have costs involved, and that's part of why the engagement with the city was so important is because the costs are are related to uh, policies that they have around how streets are used and the event management aspects and and things like that. And that is a barrier to uh, communities self-organizing and putting and putting them on themselves. And that was a large part of our engagement with the city was how do we rethink these policies um, and and create um, uh, changes to the policies or sort of new tools and, and processes um, that are fit for purpose for, for different communities or different hierarchies of streets and things like that. Those engagements, you know, they were led by the team that were full-time employed by Open Streets. I was a board member and that team was uh, uh, very tenacious and um, and uh, spent huge amounts of hours and time engaging with officials to try and understand the different reasons that were safety-driven as much as revenue-driven and otherwise. Um, and, uh, you know, some officials were very supportive and and backed the idea. Um, others, uh, I think, just didn't see it as, as much as a priority as other uh, social concerns or safety concerns or mobility concerns. Um, and so we went through lots of cycles of uh, feeling like the door was open and then feeling like the door was shut again. Right now, the city has an approach of putting on more economically focused 
street-based days. So they are more in support of open streets days that are are linked to economic activity. Um, so days that happen in streets where there's lots of businesses. So that's why you've seen these events on Bree Street and Seapoint Main Road and areas like that, because there obviously will be large benefits to the businesses along those roads uh, having a higher turnover on those days. And obviously you can get a uh, uh, support uh, in in producing the days uh, from those businesses as well. And the city puts those events on themselves through their events department, which obviously then helps to for them to uh, also learn themselves around the complexity of putting on the event and, and the associated costs and and um, and resources that are needed. And also what is necessary and and maybe not from from their policy perspective. So I think it is a, a positive step in terms of their own uh, learning journey as well. And what has been the city's approach to to extending this um, to extending open streets this initiative to low income areas where perhaps there aren't businesses on a high street that will benefit from the street being closed off? Yeah, there's been I mean open streets put on days in in Langer and Mitchell's Plain. And there's been other similar events put on by like Child Safe and, and other organizations with an interest in, in mobility or, or street safety issues um, in Kailicha and other areas, smaller events focused on, uh, you know, games for children and, and things like that. And the city is always involved in that they have to be um, in terms of just providing the permissions for the street to be closed to cars and things like that for, for the day. And they're always very supportive. They will send their own teams out to participate in the day in, in various ways. Uh, either their arts and culture department or their transport department uh, will be involved in some capacity. But they don't have an internal unit that is, you know, focused on on rolling this out. And I think that, that would be, you know, if I had a dream kind of thing, it would be it, it would be nice to see some a, a team set up that was like a placemaking team that had as one of their projects open streets days and 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 rolling them out uh, more more widely and regularly. It sounds like you're really passionate about creating more human centered cities. Um, and included in that is creating walkable neighborhoods connected by public transport. Now, that sounds like a dream, but to be honest, it also feels somewhat unattainable in South Africa. What are some of the biggest challenges to this possible reality? And what can be done to move us closer to it? How do you hold the tension of the reality of many South Africans and the imagined best practices of urban development? So, Again, I think it is. It comes down to how we view these processes and whether we see them as extra things that require separate budget, or if we make them a part of things that we're doing anyway, and it's a part of the design criteria. Um, Cape Town right now has got a huge budget to redo all of the sewerage infrastructure um, in Cape Town, um, and a lot of that is in lower income communities. Uh, for a, a long time, we didn't upgrade our sewage networks. Um, there's lots of reasons for for that. Uh, you know, we only use development contributions to upgrade infrastructure in certain areas, and other areas were left behind. Um, you know, lots lots of different factors that went into that. But now that is being rectified, and the sewage infrastructure is going to be redone. That means that all of the streets that sewage pipes run under are going to be dug up so that sewage pipes can be relayed. 
Now, instead of saying that's one project and then, you know, in five years time, we have to beg for budget somewhere else to redesign the streets and add wider pavements for pedestrians to walk on. It should be part of the same project. We're going to resurface the street anyway to redesign the street because in those communities, people are walking. Those are the neighborhoods where people walk every day, where people walk to the taxi rank at five o'clock in the morning, where people walk to school every day. So it should be one project to relay the sewage infrastructure and redesign the nature of the street on top when you're relaying it. So it, I think it really, it's, it's not so much about seeing it as, oh, we have to do so much more. It is about when are we in this community doing something? What else can we do as part of the same project that improves the community based on what we know about the behaviors of this community anyway? This is a community where people walk. How do we make it better now, now that we're here spending money anyway? It sounds like you really thought about creatively grasping the opportunity as it presents itself, um, which is something that it seems policymakers struggle with a bit at times. How, how do you see good urban planning helping us to mitigate climate risk in our local context? And do you have any examples to share with us? Climate risks are also social risks. People will be impacted differently. Um, even within you know, a particular city, people will be impacted differently in terms of whether or not their neighborhood has trees to help cool it down, uh, whether or not their neighborhood has adequate stormwater infrastructure that's regularly cleaned uh, versus another neighborhood. Um, I, w- I was going to say whether or not your neighborhood is located next to the mountain and you have the opportunity to access clean water. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, rivers that will flood or sea that will rise, um, being able, whether you will, you know, be able to go into a building that's got air conditioning in a heat wave, uh, whether there'll be energy for that heat wave, for that air con, you know, there's just so many factors. Um, and and to sort of just sit back and say, well, we'll deal with that um, when it comes is, is not, uh, it's just not a, it's not a viable option. Um, and yet a, a lot of role players still think that uh, doing anything to help uh, m- sort of mitigate um, climate change is is not a priority, that it, it's, it's sort of an added cost and it, it, um, somebody else must do it. Um, and, and so the focus is on we will adapt when the crisis comes. So the, the adapt when the crisis comes is going to be hugely, hugely expensive. So I think we, we have to plan to adapt when the crisis comes, but also, and the crisis is already here, you know, in, in many ways. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but we also should be doing, doing the, the mitigation. So the, the mitigation is obviously about changing the way in which uh, we do our mobility, um, getting people not only into electric vehicles, but out of vehicles into, into public transport. Um, or walking, having more compact neighborhoods so people have to travel less distances, having more uh, green buildings and, and things like that, green infrastructure such as parks and green roofs and uh, the better stormwater systems, all of that sort of thing. And the challenge with this is that often the city and many cities, most, I mean, the metros in, in South Africa are quite good on this. They have climate action plans and their climate action plans are not bad by a global standard, you know, they're well regarded, they're very comprehensive, they cover all of the key attributes, 
the challenge with when it comes to implementation is that a lot of the implementation sits outside of the municipal system. It sits with the household or it sits with the uh, private company. And so some things, the cost is for the municipality. The municipality must build new infrastructure or it must change the way it operates a specific set of fleets or it operates its own buildings and things like that. And it can start to do that. And in some instances, they are starting to do that. In other places, it needs to incentivize and create the economic incentive for households and businesses to change the way they do things. And that's where we struggle is because our municipalities are not um, are not really used to creating economic incentives for households and businesses to change what they do. What do you wish citizens of Cape Town knew um, about their role in creating a more livable city? I think people often think all of the solutions are about continuing to improve the, the downtowns, the, the city centers, the well-located areas. But I really think we need to pay a lot more attention to improving lower-income neighborhoods and, and investing in those neighborhoods so that the urban realm in those neighborhoods is brought up to a much better standard that you no longer can, can feel such a big difference between those areas. Yes, we need well-located affordable housing in established, well-located areas, but we also need to make everywhere else feel like a well-located area by introducing good quality urban design to those areas, by introducing good quality public spaces to those areas, by rezoning um, the the streets that are sort of naturally emerging as high streets through informality to be business streets and investing in, in bringing businesses uh, to those areas so that, yeah, so that we no longer have such an obvious sense of here is a place and here is a place that doesn't quite feel like a place, but yet people live here. I think that's very insightful. Jody, thank you for sharing your insights with us today. It's been a real privilege to have you on the podcast. And as a guest, this is a topic that um, is very important uh, to me personally and I think to all the city dwellers. So thank you very much for your time. This conversation with Jody has given me a lot to think about. Sometimes it's difficult to imagine a different reality when the current situation seems so incredibly far removed from that. I'm realizing, though, that there are already some incredible initiatives and people leading us into the future. And the question that I'm left with is how can we shape cities in a way that is more just and inclusive? Cities that don't only serve the minority, but take into consideration that equality and access will ultimately make a better life for us all. Thank you for tuning in to Season 3 of the Just for a Change podcast powered by the Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship. If you're interested in hearing more conversations with changemakers, then make sure you subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. If you've enjoyed this content, I'd also like to invite you to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast. And feel free to share it with your friends, family, and colleagues. Let's stay inspired and keep changing the way we're changing the world.